In 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, we have been in this chapter now for several weeks, and I'm hoping to finish this passage and, and the specific area of questioning that was brought before the Apostle Paul and move on into the next dimension into chapter 8 next week, which means we're not going to be formally covering verses 25 down through the end of the chapter. But I, I say that to basically say that we have covered the principles related to much of what's included in that portion of the word. For example, Paul is speaking there about the present distress. And he said it would be better not to marry under the present distress. There was a question about whether or not it would be appropriate to marry. And, and as Paul has made it clear, marriage is good, but being single is also good, depending on what the Lord has gifted you to be. When he comes to the latter part of the seventh chapter, he is identifying for us some kind of a a trial that was being experienced by the the Corinthians. And he said, right now, it would be better if you don't marry. And then he went on to say this. If you're single, then then remain single. If you're married, remain married. Don't don't disrupt the the integrity uh, and the sanctity of that marriage relationship. And so he talks about that. Then he brings into the, the picture um, the identification of a virgin. Now, depending on your translation, it may include another word, or by notes in your Bible, it might say a virgin daughter. And a principle that he's teaching there really applied very specifically to the age in which that portion was written. Men whose daughters were past, as the, this passage tells us, past the, the flower of childhood, the flower of the age of childhood. In other words, the young lady has become of marriageable age. But a father has determined that he wants that daughter to serve the Lord, and in that culture, he could determine that. He wanted her to be set apart for specific purpose for the Lord, and he may have even made a vow to that effect. But Paul goes on to say this, and he says, if you have done that, and and now you recognize that that was an unwise thing, and you want to provide uh, the, the opportunity for your daughter to be married, you have not sinned if you go ahead and let her do that. Then he brings us back to the to the primary concept of how a marriage relationship can appropriately be broken. And he says this, if one of the mates dies, then the living mate is free to marry someone else as long as they pursue someone in the Lord. So that's kind of the general flow of what is going to follow the portion that we're looking at and continuing to look at today. And our attention is now being turned back to 1 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 12, down through verse 24. And we began looking at that last week with this understanding that when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Savior, there are some things in life that just do not change. And we saw some of what that involves last week. For example, if a person trusts Christ as Savior and they're a married individual, it doesn't change that sphere of life. They are still married. The institution of marriage that God ordained was for believer and unbeliever alike. And so the Lord 
through Paul, adds this to the understanding as we read this passage. He says, if you have come to Christ after you were married and your mate is not a believer, as long as that mate is willing to stay with you, you stay with them. You remain married. And you promote a primary goal for that marriage, and that is peace. If that unbelieving mate determines that they can no longer stay with you because of perhaps now some differences that are going to be in your life, and we're going to talk about some of those in just a short time, if they decide to leave, he says, let them go. And do that in a spirit of peace because the Lord has called us to peace. So if a person trusts Christ as Savior, that station, that that place in their life where they were involved in a marriage relationship, that that didn't change. Then he goes on, when you get down to verse 17, and he tells us this, and I want you to notice there are three verses in this next passage that help us understand this lack of change because of regeneration. Verse 17, But as God has distributed to each one, As the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. In other words, stay on course. Verse 20, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Okay, that that doesn't change. Look down at verse 24. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So now he is telling us this. You were an unbeliever. The day came when you recognized your need of a Savior. You understood the sinfulness that separated you from the Creator. And by faith, you embraced the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf and you received Him for forgiveness and for the free gift by the grace of God of eternal life. You recognize that he not only died for your sins, but you embrace the fact that he rose again from the dead. And by doing so, you have thrust all of your hope into the person of Christ and you have abandoned any self-righteous work that you believed could commend you to a holy God. Now you understand that it is purely by your relationship with Jesus Christ that you have found this forgiveness in this life. And you would look at that and say, dramatic change. And there is. But there's not. Does that sound like double talk? It does, but it's not. Okay? You, you, you all are really uh, affected by the rain, aren't you? You know, I thought about doing this and I probably should have done it. I was going to have you all stand up and walk around and greet each other because as I was looking out, I'm looking and it's like, has it rained on your parade? Hopefully it won't rain on the parade tomorrow. Okay, just just thought I'd I'd say that. Uh, Somebody had to recognize the Heat's victory and and we, we had to say something about it. So there it is. Congratulations to the Heat. Now we go back to the Word, which is eternal truth. If you have accepted Christ as Savior, not only does the sphere of life in which you live not change, but your identity doesn't change either. 
Look at what, he, what Paul talks about beginning there in verse uh, 18. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Well, now, this is a passage that, that brings us back into the, the realm of the experience of the people of that day. We don't think in these terms quite as vividly as they did then. But you understand that to a, a person who is Jewish, the rite of circumcision was a sign that God established with Abraham, and if you want to read about this, you go back to Genesis chapter 17, that God established this, this act of circumcision for every male child on the eighth day that would be a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And we're familiar with that covenant. Through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it was an expression of the coming Messiah. It was an expression to Abraham that he personally would become very wealthy, very influential. He was going to impact his immediate experience, but he would also have an impact upon the rest of the world through the offspring of Abraham. And then, of course, we know that through the generations, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and then through Jacob's children, the children of Jacob, the children of Israel, Jacob's name being changed to Israel. Now those children, they have descendants, and they are part of a covenant relationship with the Lord. And that covenant relationship was demonstrated through circumcision. But there was a problem. And the problem was that many of the Jewish people who were circumcised weren't circumcised in heart. It was purely an outward act. And it wasn't even chosen by them, but it was chosen by their parents. Now, if you were a proselyte, if you were a person who said, even though my background is pagan, I recognize that the God of the Jews is the true and the living God. I want to know Him. I want to worship Him. You would then have to go through the process of circumcision as a sign of your being part of this covenant relationship with the Father. And now there was a question. If a Gentile became a believer in Christ, the thought processes had been so impacted by the culture that they thought, well, now does that mean I need to be circumcised to enter into a covenant with the true and the living God? And Paul is telling us, no, that is now history. That's put away. Circumcision doesn't avail anything. It no longer has an impact. It is no longer a sign of the covenant. It is now an unnecessary step for a person to come into a right relationship with God. So he's telling the Gentile, if you have been uncircumcised, you do not need to be circumcised because now what matters is your relationship with Christ. You have become a new creation. I'll talk more about that in a moment. 
for the Jew who was circumcised, he might raise this question. Well, that has identified me now with a people who by and large have rejected the truth, who had the offer of the Messiah and turned him away and said, no, I don't want to be identified with those people anymore. And the Lord says, no, no, wait a minute. Wait. Circumcision doesn't mean anything anymore. Don't become, and then he tells us something very interesting, uncircumcised. Now, does that strike you as being a little bit peculiar? How do you get uncircumcised? And I wondered that too until I read something that was written by, I believe it was Josephus, the historian, who said there were actually people who tried through surgery to eliminate their identification as being circumcised. Does that make sense? I don't want to go a whole lot further with this. Okay? All right. But you all have the idea. Okay? I think that there's perhaps more than just the physical aspect of this. I think there were those who said, well, then I don't want anything to do with my history. I don't want anything to do with my past. And I think the apostle is trying to make it very clear. Hey, listen, you have a rich history. It was through the, the, the Jews that God brought the revelation. He brought the prophets. He revealed himself. And there is a rich heritage there. But even though that heritage is rich, the issue is not you are being unidentified with, with the Jewish people. But now you have become a new creation in Christ Jesus. We often use that passage to identify the change that personally takes place in our lives when we trust Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Let's be careful. There is certainly a degree of truth in the personal application of that. But the real point of that is to, under, to help us understand that once we become a believer and a follower of Christ, we have as Gentiles, stepped out of our pagan world into a whole new creation in Christ. Who was in Christ before the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of the Savior, and I might add, the coming of the Holy Spirit? Nobody. Nobody was in Christ before. But now, through the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit... For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. This is now a new creation. And for a Jewish individual, it is no longer a relationship that is characterized by this, this covenant of circumcision, but it is by faith you now step into this realm of being in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now we are Christians. And I realize that that name didn't become identifying the believers until the church at Antioch. But for our intents and purposes, we're not Gentile, we're not Jewish anymore, but we still have those backgrounds. That hasn't changed, but now we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. So Paul tries to help us keep that in line. 
Then he goes on and he tells us one final element here and, and another important dimension. When you come to know Christ as Savior, it doesn't change your station in life. Look at what he says here beginning at verse 20. Well, in the verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Paul is not defending slavery. What he is telling us is this. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the state in which you are when you are called does not change. If you were a slave, you're still a slave. And he says, now don't worry about that. Um, Today, do, do you hear people... Uh, who are opposed to the gospel uh, try to defend their opposition to what the Word of God has to say by saying this, well, the Bible condones slavery. Have you ever heard people say that? Oh, you haven't? Oh, I've heard that on a number of occasions. In fact, personally, just a few weeks ago, we were involved in a discussion where that issue came up. And it's a, a, a lack of understanding that people have. What the Lord is saying is this. Listen, if you've been called a slave, you're still a slave, even after you become a Christian. That doesn't change. Well, that almost sounds like he's condoning it. No. He's going to tell us something very new, something very distinct about that. We'll get to that in just a moment. What he is saying is this. Just because you've become a follower of Christ doesn't change the state in which you have been called. Are you, are you physically handicapped? That doesn't change. Are you financially strapped? That doesn't change. Are you involved in litigation? That doesn't change. And you can just go on and on and think of all of the different things that remain the same after you become a follower of Christ and do not change in the state in which you have been called. And so what Paul is saying is this. He's trying to help us understand that if you have been called as a servant, as a slave, that conversion doesn't automatically change your circumstances. And and we have a great illustration of that with... Um, Philemon and Onesimus. Do you remember what happened? Onesimus was a slave, ran away from Philemon, encountered the Apostle Paul. Paul led him to Christ. Now Paul wrote a letter back to Philemon and sent Onesimus back with that letter to Philemon saying, listen, this guy was your slave. He ran away. What he did was wrong. He's now coming back. And I would like you, Philemon... By the way, if you really want to read something that is manipulative, read the book of Philemon. It's really short. Read it this afternoon. But Paul, he says this, I understand the correctness of Onesimus coming back to you as a slave. And if that's how you receive him back, then receive him back as a slave. He says, but you know what? I would much rather have you receive him back as a brother. 
And then he goes on to say, if he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. If when he ran away, he stole from you, I'm going to pay you. I will pay you back. And, and if there's anything else that he owes, listen, I'm going to take care of that. Then here comes, <laughs> this is so good. Here comes the manipulation. But don't forget all I've done for you. You, you know the Lord because of my ministry. You, you have become the person that you are because I have shared with you the truths about the Lord. And he goes on and he talks about this relationship. And what Paul is basically saying is this. Listen, this guy was your slave. He is still your slave. But you have the authority to change all of that. And now Onesimus, if you have the opportunity to be free, be free. But just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that you have a change in your state. I receive letters frequently from incarcerated individuals who have come to know Christ as their Savior. We, we have some men who have been wonderfully involved in jail ministries and somehow even in other prisons people are finding out about our church and they're writing and they're asking for devotionals and, and asking for us just to be in touch with them and, and to correspond. And, uh, you know, when they became a Christian, they didn't get out of jail. They're still a prisoner. They're still there. That didn't change. But having said all of those things, if you can package all of that into one package, let's take that now and put it on the other side of the equation. The things that, ha- that, that you were before you came to Christ as Savior, you still are after you trust Christ. It's the same. Now let's go to the other side of the equation. The things that you were when you became a Christian are all different. Wait a minute. That is so contradictory. Not really. Because the changes now are changes that take place within not in the external circumstances. If you were married, you're still married. If you were Jewish, you still have that heritage. If you were Gentile, you still have that heritage. If you were a slave, you still are a slave. If you have the opportunity to be made free, go ahead, take care of that. Use that opportunity and be made free. But now let's look and take a look at the other side of that. The things that regeneration does change. What does it change? It changes our sphere of life. You said, wait a minute. It doesn't change our sphere of life. But it does change our sphere of life in this regard. Your purpose has changed. If you go back to the situation of the marriage relationship, look at the differences that exist. At verse 14, we begin to understand that when a person comes to know Christ as Savior, though they are still married, the emphasis, the purpose of their life changes to now making a, an impact spiritually upon their family. Look at what Paul says in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. What happens? With one's mate, there is now a whole new influence of life that takes place. And what is occurring is this. You were unsaved, your mate was unsaved. 
You came to know Christ as your Savior. Your mate still does not know Christ as Savior. You are still married. You are not set free from that marriage relationship. But now, you are a new creation. You are a different person. Though you are still the same in that you're married, you're different in the purpose that you have for being with that mate. And here's the purpose. You now introduce into the home a spiritual effect that sanctifies your mate. What does the word sanctify mean? It literally means, and and we often translate this word holy, sanctified. That's the same word. But in its root etymology, it means set apart. You have now a mate who is set apart by your influence by the purpose that you have. And your influence brings in a whole new way of life with which that unsaved mate now needs to deal and that will influence, that will impact that unsaved mate. How does that happen? Well, once you know Christ as Savior, your interests change. You don't have the same interests anymore. Um, your language changes. Where you used to use Christ's name as a curse, you now treat it with reverence and respect. In our day, your reading materials change. You're, You're not taken with those slutty novels. By the way, Okay, when I say, by the way, everybody looks up. Because you know I'm leaving the sermon and I'm going into something else. I have not read this book, Fifty Shades Fifty Shades of Grey. How many of you have heard of that? Okay, just most of you have heard of it. Apparently, it is a filthy, filthy book. And Christians, according to... Do any of you listen to the Moody radio station and you listen to, um, what's his name? Uh, the guy in the afternoon. Chris Fabry Live. He had uh, a lady on who was addressing the, the horribleness of this book and the way Christians were responding, how they would defend this book. And they would say, well, there's real value in this. I have no idea what they're talking about. I have not read it. I've not even read any reviews of it. But I have heard that it is just a filthy, vile... And now some of you might be tempted to read that, and I I hope you won't. But just a horrible book. And then I hear this. Christians are thinking it's okay. May I tell you my perspective on that? You know I'm going to. Okay, why do I ask you? I honestly believe that the day in which we live, it is very easy for people to believe they're Christians who are not. That may even be true in here. Because there are so many Gospels that are being presented today. Sometimes from good people. We were listening this morning to the Moody station and the announcer that was announcing the the music was way off base 
He was talking about the gospel being asking Jesus into your life. Wasn't that? Oh, that's right, that's right. If you followed Jesus, then you were a Christian. No! There are people who will live by the standards that Christ established through his teaching. But that does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is coming to the recognition of your lostness. You are dead in trespasses and sins. And you need someone to forgive that sin and to give you life. And that doesn't happen by following the teaching of Jesus. It happens when you forsake everything and you turn to Him and you say, I need a Savior. I need someone to forgive my sins. I need someone to give me eternal life and bring me into the right relationship with God who created me. And I am trusting in Christ and Him alone. Now you're a Christian. And you don't you don't like those books that are dirty anymore. You don't like the same entertainment that you liked before. You don't go to the same places that you went before. And I am seeing in the Christian community all these people talking about all these folks that are, are at this church and at that church and they're following Christ and they're doing this and that. And what I'm saying is I don't see it in society. I see a small number of people who are willing to say we genuinely trust Christ as our Savior. We are living for Christ. And if the rest of the world is moving away from Him, we are not moving. We're standing here. We're going to live holy lives. We're going to live righteous lives. And it doesn't matter. And that life changes. And when you become a believer, if you have an unsaved mate, you are making an impact on their life. Because things aren't the same anymore. That's part of the reason I believe Paul said if they want to leave, let them leave. Because you've really changed the playing field. Now if they stay with you, you're going to make a good impact on them. Not only will you make a good impact, but your friends will because now you have new friends. And I realize that that creates some problems. We sometimes become so immersed in the friendships of other believers that we completely forget the unbelievers on the outside. And that would be the downside of this. But the upside of this is that within that community of believers, we now encourage one another, we minister to one another, we teach one another, we stand with one another, we, we weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we stand together as followers of Christ. And now you're bringing new friends home, where before you would bring friends to get drunk on Saturday night, now you're bringing friends maybe to have a Bible study. And your mate is saying, huh, what's going on here? Well, you are now influencing that person to make a decision. There are two ways of life, and only two. Lost, saved. Lost, saved. Your way of life is showing something else. Their way of life is now drawn into question. They might reject your way of life, or they might begin to say, you know what, this is really making sense. And then add this, you introduce into the home... A blessing that only God gives to His children. I'd like to give you illustrations, but I can't. I'm going to be out of time. But here's the deal. There are things that God does for His children 
that he doesn't do for those who aren't. He promises to give grace through all the trials of life. Those who don't know the Savior don't have that promise. So now a tough time comes in your life and here is the unbelieving mate whose all, his life is all sh- shaken or her life is all shattered by what's come in. But there is a peace and a settledness in the heart and life of the believer because God's grace is sufficient to see them through whatever difficulty comes their way. And this person looks at this person and says, you have something I don't have. And the whole point is that they will come to know Christ as Savior. So the Lord says, it's the same, but it's different. And the same thing is true for the kids. If children are raised in a pagan family, all the influence is pagan. If children are raised into a family where there is a believer and an unbeliever, they now have the opportunity to see both. Now I'm going to tell you, from my experience, and my experience is not authoritative, but my experience is this. When you have a believing mate and an unbelieving mate and children are involved, there is a great deal of influence that is made this way. But most of the time, when the kids make their own choices, they go this way. That's why you pray for your mate. You pray for them to get saved. In my family, when I was growing up, My dad accepted Christ as Savior when he was 18. Didn't live for the Lord at all. Wasn't pagan in a sinful way, but just really had... He was involved in his business, and that was the big deal. And and he wouldn't go to church because he was so tired on Sunday. He worked and worked and worked and worked. A great provider, wonderful man. But it wasn't until I was 18 years old that my dad finally woke up spiritually All the rest of that time, my mom was making an impact upon my life that caused me to understand the importance of making a decision to do what God wants rather than what the world wants because the world is passing away and what I have in the Father is an incorruptible inheritance that neither perishes, spoils, nor fades. So which is the better deal? What's the better deal? God's way, right? Because you guys are going to get nailed to think that this is the better way. But this is the better way. Finally, Dad got on board. And he grew and grew and grew. And ultimately, he became one of the uh, leaders in the church because he grew. But I'll tell you, it was my mom's influence that got me on the right track. By the way, I'm on the right track, just in case you wondered. Some of you are looking at me like, (laughs) it didn't do enough. I know that. I'm not home yet. When I get home, everything will be perfected. And I'm not speaking about Coconut Creek. Anyway, there is an impact upon the family that emerges when a person knows Christ as Savior. And it impacts the mate and it impacts the children. And then the last two areas that it impacts... It changes one's identity. He said, wait a minute. Uh, You didn't change identity before. If you were Jewish, you, you still have that as your background. If you were Gentile, you still have that as your background. But no, wait. Even though those are your backgrounds, those are your orientations, you have become a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In this new creation, you yourself are a different person. That's why people will tell you, when I accepted Christ as Savior, I felt like there was a load lifted off my spirit. There were other people that will say this. I really didn't feel anything. <laughs> I, I accepted Christ. I truly believed in Him. And after I expressed to Him that, yeah, Lord, I believe. I, I receive Christ as my Savior. Which, by the way, the prayer is not an essential part. But I think it's good. It gives you a hook to hang, hang your, your memory on. Lord, I do believe. I accept Christ. I, I trust Him for my forgiveness, for my eternal life. Nothing's different. Except now, I go into work. And before, I used to try to take a few things. Take them home. I don't do that anymore. That's wrong. That's wrong. I used to yell and scream at my wife. Or I used to try to get my husband to do things by manipulating him. And don't try to parallel that with the Apostle Paul. You're not Paul. And I, I, I try to do that. But you know what? I don't want to yell at her anymore. That's wrong. I shouldn't do that. I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And, and I'm not going to manipulate my husband anymore. In the things that I believe he's doing that are wrong, I'm not even going to nag him about it. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to show through a meek and quiet spirit what God can do in the life of one of his children and hopefully he'll do it in yours as well. Does that make sense? Do you get it? Life changes. It doesn't change, but it changes. Double talk? No, no. Things remain the same, but you're different. And then finally, you notice this. The change it also occurs in one station in life. Now your motive is changed. Why is it that he can say to a servant, you remain a servant? Do you remember what we read? We read earlier from Galatians. Uh, he, he says that, not, not from Galatians, from Colossians and from Titus. He says, now, if you're a slave, you're still a slave. But now... Instead of talking back to your master, serve him with obedience. Your motive is different. You're not trying to hold your own ground in a horrible situation because you have been enslaved. Now you're going to show him what the presence of Christ in a person's life can do. And you do the best job you can possibly do for the glory of God so, so that people will see the truth of who the true and the living God really is. If you can be made free, go ahead. That's okay. Step out and be made free. But now you're serving for a different motive. Now you want to influence others, your master, your boss, for the person of Christ and to make a positive impact upon his life. The same, but different. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, our purpose changes. The emphasis of our life change, changes. 
and the motives for which we live change, though everything else might remain the same. And Paul looks at us and he says, Now, you as new people, you still have to face the issues of life, but you face them with a completely different heart. The focus now is for eternity because what is here and now is passing away. Now we live to obey God's commands. Now we live to influence other people for the cause of Christ. Ah, I'm still the same, but I'm really different. That's what it's about. Let's stand. Father, I want to thank you again for the effort these dear people have made to be here today. I thank you for their willingness to come out in such inclement weather. But Father, our purpose for meeting is a high and holy purpose. And Father, I thank you that because we've met together, we can encourage one another, we can bless one another, we can worship you and we can be a people who are different on the inside. I pray, Lord, that as we return to the worlds in which we live, the different spheres, the different identities that we have, the different state of existence in which we live, I pray that you would help us to be different. I pray that you would help us to show the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.